move back in here real quick. Well, if you've been here, you know that we are in First John. We've been here for several, about a couple months now. We're going to be in First John chapter 4 this week. And if you've looked at your bulletin, you know that I titled this sermon, God is Love. And that what we're going to see is that because God has loved us, we ought to love one another. And we're going to see the outcome of that as well. Um, And as I thought about this, as I pondered this sermon, I, I wondered a little bit how you might react to yet another sermon on love if you might be growing weary of hearing the word love as you go into your car and leave and hear songs about love, as you hear sermons seemingly week after week about love. One thing that John is notorious about in this, for in this letter is, I mean, they call him the apostle of love because he talks about it, and this is going to be no exception. We are going to hear about love in this passage today, and I, I wonder if you grow weary and tired of hearing that word. Eventually I'll get this under control, the air conditioning's <laughs> not my friend right now. Actually, it is, but there we go. <laughs> um, because our, our world speaks of love a lot. We hear the word a lot, and we hear it a lot in churches as well. And sometimes I wonder if we sort of, like a child who hears his mother all the time and eventually begins to not hear her as much. Not that I've ever seen that or experienced that, um, Sometimes we start to ignore things that we become too familiar with, that we hear too much. But today I want us to to stop and to make sure and be diligent to focus and think about because what we're going to hear about is not just love. We're going to hear about who God is, the very nature and essence of who God is. You see, John is going to tell us that God is love. He makes a very bold and simple statement that is, well, in some respects, not so simple. It, It is immense with meaning. So while the world oftentimes treats love very trivially, we're going to see that at its essence, at its foundation, love is anything but that. That God is love. And that we are to love one another because God is love. And that in so doing, we display God's character. And we actually are able to reassure our hearts that we are in him. So if you turn with me to 1 John 4, if you haven't already, 1 John 4, verses 7 through 21. And if you don't have a Bible today, there are Bibles in front of you, and if you look in your bulletin, the page number will be there for you, in case you aren't familiar with flipping through your Bible and and finding places in there. The page number will be there for you. The chapter, chapter 4, that's the big number, and the smaller numbers of verses, verse 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. 
If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. If you pray with me. Father, we know that the flowers fade, that the grass withers, but that your word will stand forever. So Lord, as we come here to hear from you, we pray that our hearts would be open, that we would not grow tired of hearing your word. We would not grow tired of hearing your gospel, but that our hearts would continually be fresh and open and longing for the spiritual milk that is your word to nourish us, to strengthen us, and that we might know you and love you. And we pray that we would know your love. We would know the very essence of who you are, that we would ponder those depths today that we might be transformed, that we might be changed and become like you as we see your love on display, both in the cross of Jesus Christ, but also in the lives of those who believe in him. And so we pray in his name, the name of our Lord and our Savior, the one who has absorbed your wrath, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, like I said, today we're going to hear a lot about love. We're going to start out by thinking about the fact that John makes a statement twice that God is love. And as I hear that, I can't help but think that maybe the songs don't fully have it right. If you grew up when I did, um, one of the popular Christian bands was DC Talk, and they had a, a popular song called Love is a Verb. And if you are familiar, I, I, I'm not actually a John Mayer fan, but I looked up Love is a Verb. DC Talk spells it with a U, apparently, because they were hip back in the day, and uh, John Mayer spells it right. So if you spell it love correctly, you'll get the John Mayer song, Love is a Verb. If you spell it L-U-V, you'll get DC Talk. And they make, I mean, well, I don't know about John Mayer, but DC Talk maybe makes some good points in there that love is a verb. That's not a false statement. But sometimes I wonder if we forget, if our culture wants us to forget that love is not just a verb, but it is also a noun. You see, God 
is love. And John repeats that twice in this passage. It's actually a very commonly heard statement about God, isn't it? Do we, do we say that and repeat that often? Uh, I, I feel like it is. And I did a little Google search. I figured if Nick, a couple weeks ago, when he was talking about love, could do an Amazon search, I think that's what he did, I could do a Google search. Um, so I Googled, God is love. I got 1.66 billion results in less than a third of a second. I don't know what a third of a second even is. I can't even imagine that short of a time. Um, like a blink, I guess. And obviously, so I did some other to compare to see what else would come up. I googled just God. Obviously, it got a lot more, 2.43 billion in a half a second. But when you think about how much we talk and write about God, and then you think about the fact that God is love, I mean, that's only less than a billion other responses in, in a little bit more time. When I searched for something a little different, Islam, it actually only received 864 million responses in over half a second. I'm not a math genius, but, so if I'm wrong, please gently correct me, but I think that's about half of what God is love got for Islam. I see Robert Bodie calculating in his head. <laughs> um, so I might be wrong, I might be right, I don't know. So we know it's a very popular saying, it's a, something that we hear often, that that is all over the internet, if not in our lives, and being told to us and thought about. But I wonder how much we stop and think about what it means, what it actually means that God is love. And as I was thinking about this, and thinking about what our culture thinks and hears and believes, I actually came across an article, and in that article, it, it I'll quote it, according to Pew Research, 80% of Americans believe in God. They may not agree on theology or church practices, but they believe in a higher power. Did you hear that? 80% of Americans believe in God. They may not agree on theology or church practices, but they do believe in a higher power. And as I heard that, I thought about how much that actually plays into our view and how much maybe that, that informs our view of, of what God, or how the world tells us God is love. I thought about the fact that so often our tendency and our culture's tendency, maybe we don't do this explicitly, but, but maybe the culture speaks to us and we start to do this. We start to flip the words around a little bit. Instead of God is love, love is God. If you go around and talk to people, I've heard many times when people talk about their religion, you know, well, I'm not into organized religion, and you push them a little bit, kindness is my religion, love is my religion. Have you heard that? Have you experienced that? Have you seen that? Have you believed that, maybe? I mean, really what that comes down to is my understanding of love or my understanding of kindness is God. I wonder how you view and understand God. Is he merely a higher power, like 80% of Americans believe, or is he actually personal? Is God a personal God, one that we can relate to, that we can have a relationship with? 
When John talks about God as love, he is not talking about just a higher power or something that is very abstract. He's not talking about a notion of love. He's talking about a person. God is love. And it's interesting because that phrase, God is, actually occurs four times in the scripture. So if we want to say God is love, actually equates to love is God, then what do we do with the other sayings? John actually is the one that uses it most. He uses it three times. Obviously, God is love, God is light, and God is spirit. And then the fourth one comes from actually the author of Hebrews when he says, our God is a consuming fire. I don't think we want to say consuming fire is God. I don't know if anybody actually wants to say that. Um, we don't worship love. We worship God. We worship a person. But, but John is actually getting at the essence of who God is. He's telling us God is love. And John has spoken frequently of love at this point, but he's not done a lot to give us the foundation for love. And now he does it because he wants us to be clear. When we talk about God as love, we're not talking about what God is, but who God is. We've seen that the Christian life is to be marked by love. And now the foundation of that love is revealed more clearly. It is God himself. And God loves. There we go, the verb. God loves because that is who he is. You know, so often I think our love is always almost fueled by our need for something, our desire for something. God doesn't love because he needs anything. Do you know that? So often we want to feel needed by God, don't we? But God doesn't need our love. God loves because he is love. And John makes that clear, doesn't he, in verse 10? He says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then John, in verse 11, puts the imperative there, the command to love one another be on the basis of that love of God. This is a profound truth, isn't it? This is something that gets in the heart of who God is. It actually, you might not be thinking this way, but it actually gets us to the Trinity. I remember hearing the joke, and I'm probably not going to say it quite right or get the, get the line, that, the laughs that it usually does, but the little question, what was God doing before creation? Making hell for those who ask such questions. Have you heard that one? I've heard it somewhere, and then it came up again as I was reading. That is absolutely wrong, actually, <laughs> believe it or not. God was, was actually, we, we know what God was doing before creation. We know something of God in his, in his person before creation. John, in chapter 17 of the Gospel of John, we hear Jesus actually praying to his Father. And what does he say? Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. Do you understand that? Have you thought about that? So within this wonderful, perfect community that is the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, even before creation ever happened, even before anything else ever came into being, there was God. And he was loving himself. He was loving, but there was love between the three persons of the Trinity. In the very nature, the essence of the Trinity, there is a relationship of love. I mean, just stop for a second and think. Before, 
the world came into being, before any one of us ever had life, for all eternity, for as far back beyond anything we can imagine and going forward beyond anything we can imagine, God loved. God, the Son, loved the Father. The Father loved the Son. The Spirit loved the Son. The Spirit loved the Father. There was this relationship of love all the way back pre-creation into eternity and into eternity future. John is telling us something more than, than just a statement about love. He's telling us about the very nature of who God is. God is not like us. God is love because love is in him. His characteristics, his attributes are spoken of him. He is the, the fountain of them. So when we love, we are just merely reflecting God's character. I say merely, and, and it's true, we merely are reflecting God's character, but, but that's an important reflection, even if it is just a mere reflection. Just think about it. We exist because he exists, right? Like, we cannot have existence on our own. We exist because God has spoken us into existence, because God in his sovereignty and his power keeps the world together. And so we ought to love because God is love. You see, the world oftentimes will speak in terms that makes us believe and and that they revere love, that they worship love. But they really revere their understanding of love, don't they? They worship something that they don't understand. They worship what they don't know. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, then you worship a God who is personal, who we relate to, a God who is love. We worship what we understand and hopefully are growing in our understanding of. And this, this phrase, God is love, reminds me of, of a discussion I had because I think a lot of times even Christians maybe abuse this a little bit. I remember as a freshman in college talking about God's attributes, who God was, and, and some of my friends wanted to push back and just make love as the overarching, the one attribute of God that is above all else. Might not have used those words, but that was the basic point. And I was thinking, but what about all the other things about God that it says God is holy, God is spirit, all these things? But God is God. That is who he is. And he can be described as love because love at its very essence is derived from him. Just as holiness is and justice and mercy and grace As God reveals himself, though, it should have an effect, shouldn't it? As we see God's love, we actually see some of the other characteristics more clearly, and as we understand other characteristics of God, we see his love more clearly. When we hear God is love and when we understand love, we are learning about God as a person, who God is. The world wants us to think that God is not a personal deity. He's a higher power. He's a vague notion of what we want love to be. But when we worship the one true God, the God who is love, then that has a dramatic effect. It ought to change us. Because God is love, therefore, love one another. For Christians, though we worship a personal God who is described as love, we ought to love one another because of that. You notice in verses 7 and 21, the passage actually kind of begins and ends with this command to love one another. 
whoever loves God must also love his brothers, how chapter 4 ends, and verse 7 begins with the command, let us love one another, for love is from God. And this is really important as I thought about where this passage was because it fits, ties in so well with Nick's passage from two weeks ago, and then we kind of have Chris's passage last week stuck in the middle about discernment. I, I read this quote, and I couldn't help but think how right and how apt this is and how much we need to hear this. One author said, even those on the right side of an issue, a theological issue, may seek to rectify wrongs in harsh, loveless, thoughtless or prideful ways. Have you ever seen this happen? Have you ever seen somebody on the right side of a theological issue try to argue for their point in a loveless, thoughtless, or prideful way? I'm guessing if I ask you guys to raise your hand, probably everybody in this room would raise their hand. Um, if not, I don't know if you've ever talked to anybody else. <laughs> because this is common. This is, and, and frankly, this is the persona of Christians and churches, isn't it? We are humans, and, and we oftentimes like to be right more than we like to love. And I don't want to say that we need to pit one against the other, because they should actually go together. Theologians would talk about orthodoxy and how it should produce orthopraxy. And those are big words, but it just simply means right belief should produce right practice or right actions. The proper response to knowing God and knowing about God is to live like God. So if God is love, we ought to love one another. This makes perfect sense from what John is telling us, doesn't it? It shouldn't, it shouldn't be mind-boggling or anything. We know that we abide in him because he's given us the spirit, and we, we know that we are in God because we love one another. To be alive in Christ, therefore, is to live a life of love. And we see that love in Christ, don't we? What does it mean to love one another? It means to be like Jesus. We're going to get to that a little bit more later. Um, right now, I actually want to read you a passage from Matthew. And you don't need to turn there. I'll just read it to you. Um, it'll be a little quicker that way. I'm going to be reading from the um, end of Matthew 25. Jesus tells the disciples, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates a sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. And then he'll say unto his left, 
those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's a really stark comparison, isn't it? There's Jesus judging the world, right? Some on his right, some on his left, some to judgment, some to eternal blessing with the Father. And what marks the difference is the love that they had. And we see how they loved. They loved by visiting when they were in prison, by when Jesus was naked, they clothed him. When he was sick, they visited him. All these things just to love and to sacrifice and to do things for someone else, thinking of someone else's good. And one of the things that actually reminded me and made me think of this passage was the fact that the passage of Matthew 25 is often misunderstood. Many Christian teachers in, in a desire to um, kind of teach a broader theology have just taken it that, well, basically all we need to do is just love people and be nice and, and care for the poor. But specifically in this passage, I mean, all that's good. We should care for the poor and, and, and love everyone. But he specifically says, my brothers. And if you look in the Gospel of Matthew, that is a term that is only used once in a similar context, and that is when Jesus is talking about the church, his people. And so when John says, love one another, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about when you see a brother who's a stranger, you welcome them in. When they're naked and you clothe them, when they're sick and in prison and you visit them. And that's what we did today, isn't it, with the benevolence offering, isn't it? We show love for one another. We care for those. So what does it look like to obey the commandment to love one another? Well, here's a good start. Look at Matthew 25. Think about what it means just to care about other people, to care about those in the different seats around you. If you're a member of Timberline Baptist Church, we've covenanted together. We've told each other that we are going to care for each other, that we're going to love each other are you looking out for the needs of that person next to you or on the other side of the auditorium or the person, well, I almost sit down in children's ministry, but everybody's up here today, so in the nursery? I wonder how do you care for them? How are you doing that? One of the most simplest ways that I would encourage you is we have membership directories, but so often we use those to think of like, I can find a person if I want to call them and I use that as a prayer guide. I can tell you the staff does it every week at our meetings. We just go through page after page after page and pray for each and every one of you. Do that as a family. Caitlin and I are trying to do that every morning to get up and just to pray for a chunk of, of the membership because we want you to be prayed for. How we, we love you and we want to care about you. It's a really simple, easy way. Brothers and sisters, we ought to love one another. Another quote from that same author on, on this passage, he writes, John speaks here not of perfect people, but of God's already pristine love, 
finding its fullest possible earthly expression as people respond to the message of Christ and reach out to one another as a result. Brothers and sisters, God has loved us. And therefore, we ought to love one another. If we claim to be Christians, if we claim to know God, how can we claim to know God if we do not look like God, if we're not trying to be like God? And how do we act like God? What has God done? Well, he has given his son. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, as propitiation for our sins. You see, God, in his eternal relationship with himself, he was loving. And that love came out, and we see it most clearly. God reveals himself. If you remember the author of Hebrews, he begins his, his letter by saying that God has spoken in many ways, particularly he mentions the prophets and how we have the word of God there. But then he says in these last days, God has spoken through his son, God has spoken to us and he has revealed himself and he's revealed that he is love, particularly because that love is expressed and displayed and that he would send his son. That, that relationship of love that had always been that perfect fellowship, that the father would actually send the son to, to live a sinless life, but also to suffer and die on our behalf that we might be brought into fellowship with him into that eternal love that has always been and always will be so brothers and sisters believe in the lord jesus christ believe that he is the christ that he came in the flesh that he died that death to atone for our sins and as you believe that, let that transform and change your life, that you might be like him, that you might die to yourself for the benefit and, and for the care of other people around you. And we do this. We love one another because it displays God's character. And this is one of the things that's maybe not as clear in this passage, but, but if you have your Bibles open, look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And if we weren't sure if God could be seen, John writes in verse 20, love God whom he has not seen. He says that same point, God cannot be seen. And this is important to remember, and this is, I remember Chris last week actually reading from the Book of Mormon. We have to realize that they have a different view of God. They worship a different God. Their God can't, the Father can actually be seen. They teach that, and that is just wrong, and that is a, in, not in accordance with the Scriptures. And that's throughout Scriptures. Paul makes the same point, and there's references to that in the Old Testament, but here, the important thing is that we see that even though physical eyes cannot perceive God, that we cannot see the Father, God has made himself visible. Do you remember the words that Jesus said to Philip in the Gospel of John, 
Philip comes to him and says, show us the Father. Do you remember what Jesus says? Do you remember his response? He says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? That's kind of an odd way, I think, if we, if we didn't know the passage, if we weren't familiar with it, to if we just kind of saw that conversation in isolation without the rest of the gospel. Philip comes to Jesus wanting to see the Father, and Jesus says, have I been with you so long? You still do not know me. He goes on, and he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Brothers and sisters, God made himself visible in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came in the flesh and became visible. That is what John has told us. God became visible for a time. He came and lived on this earth, and the disciples beheld him. And seeing Jesus is the same as seeing the Father, not because they're the same person, but because to see Jesus is to see the Father. Because we see Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, we see who God is. We can know that God is love. God is made visible in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But now how do we see God? I'm just going to wager and bet. I'm not a betting man, but this is a bet that I would take, that none of you have actually seen Jesus. Um, It's been a couple thousand years since he was on the earth. He's ascended to the right hand of God. We know that from the Gospels and Acts. So how do we see God now? Well, brothers and sisters, I don't know if you've thought of this as Timberline Baptist Church. You display God to the world. And that's the point that John is making. He says, no one has seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. It's brought to its, its perfection. That's kind of, it's pointing to the goal where, where love is meant to be, the, the mature state of love. If we love one another, God's, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So do you want the world to see God? Do you want the world to know who God is? Do you care about that? Do you, is that a, a thing that you worry about and want to see happen? I hope so. That's part of our mission. You know, I, I love apologetics. They're, they're a wonderful tool, but sometimes I think we think we need that more than we do. I think sometimes we always want the answer to the questions that we think people have. But really, what would be more convincing is if they saw a church that would die to itself constantly for the sake of others. Remember the words of Jesus. I, I feel like these words actually just kind of underpin everything in First John. When Jesus tells the disciples in John 13 that he has a new commandment for them, that they love one another just as he has loved them. And by this, all men will know that they are his disciples. Do you, want, do you want people to know that you are a disciple of Jesus, not a disciple of Pastor Chris or Nick or anyone else, but a disciple of Jesus? Then love one another as Christ has loved you. Do you understand that? Our charge as a church is to make God visible by, by showing his great love. 
we are actually to be the means by which God loves his people. I wonder if you remember the story in Acts of how Saul, who later was became Paul, was converted. So Saul was on a mission to persecute the church, and he's actually going to persecute the church in a different city. And on his way, Jesus shows up in a bright light, and Saul is down on the ground and, and ends up going blind. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute Does he say, my church? No, he says, why do you persecute me? Have you thought about that? Do you understand that? He was persecuting the church. He couldn't persecute Jesus. Jesus was in heaven. He came down in in a vision in bright light. But Jesus associates with his body so closely, so, so dearly, that to love God's people is to love God. To persecute God's people is to persecute God. Brothers and sisters, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see a love that is so wonderful. And as we hear that love and believe that love, it should change us, it should cause us to love one another and so display God's glory to the world. When that love is allowed to flourish and and we believe and, and look and trust in God and are transformed, we become a display of God's glory to those who who maybe do not know who God is or have, you know, those out in the world who do not believe. But as we love one another, it, it does something else. It gives us confidence, doesn't it? If God is love, that means that we ought to love one another and we display God's character by doing so. And we also have our hearts reassured. Do you see that? Do you see that in the passage, I wonder? The second half of this passage is a lot about judgment and fear and love. And John kind of seems to kind of be going around. But, but as we talk about love being perfected, we see the gospel taking root in our lives and transforming and changing us so that we display God's perfect love, right? That is what it means for love to be perfected, is that we are displaying a love that is rooted in the gospel and who God is. Remember, God is steady. He has been loving since before creation, and he will be loving into new creation and for all eternity. God's love is steady. His gospel love is always there. He has not changed. He doesn't love us because he feels like it. He doesn't love us because we did something to cause him to love us. He loves us because it is who he is. We, I dare to say, love when we feel like it. We love when it's convenient, when it's easy. Even sometimes with our sacrificial love, I wonder how often we do that because we feel like it's the right thing to do. We feel obligated for some reason. Or it's because we've been trained and taught that we ought to act this way, and maybe we feel um, that we'll feel shame if we don't. But God doesn't 
love because he's been trained to love. I mean, it's good to train our children to do loving things and to act that way and to, to um, have some of those things along and to push and prod each other. But God doesn't need pushing and prodding to love. God loves because he is love. And Jesus demonstrated his love in the gospel by dying for us and putting to death the punishment and wrath for our sins. Jesus accomplished something so great for us, didn't he? John reminds us that fear has to do with punishment, but perfect love casts out fear. So, brothers and sisters, if you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you know that God is love, and you see that love in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you have no reason to fear, because if Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for us, because of the great love that the Father had and the great love that Christ had, the great love that the Spirit had, there is no reason to fear, is there? Because that wrath has been absorbed, it's been taken away. So often I think we live our lives and we worry, did I pray enough today? Is God going to hate me because I did X, Y, or Z? We look at our own lives and our own works and we live in fear and dread of God. But perfect love casts out fear because we see perfect love in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if God has taken the punishment for our sins, then we need not fear. You see, if the Father loved us enough to send his Son as propitiation, that means that God's wrath is no longer on us. If we just turn from our sins and trust in Jesus, we believe he is the Christ and that he came in the flesh, and we seek to love our brothers if we confess our sins and walk in the light, why would there be any threat from God? And that's actually one of the reasons, too, that I chose Matthew 25. If you remember that passage, that's where the sheep and the goat are divided. Interestingly, the word that John uses here for punishment I believe it's the only other place in Matthew 25 where that's used. The idea of punishment is for those who, who do not know Jesus and do not love Jesus by loving his people. Brothers and sisters, do you, do you struggle with fear and doubt about your faith? Well, the gospel of 1 John is written to you. If you struggle, if you ever have doubts and and you are all human here, so I'm assuming at some point you all have doubts and questions and fears. John's comfort to you is that if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he came in the flesh, that he died as propitiation for your sins, a died to atone for your sins, if you turn and love your brothers and your sisters, that you abide in God and God abides in you and that you know God. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Brothers and sisters, if we pretend to love God, but we do not love our brothers, then, then we do have reason for fear, don't we? But, but if we in turn come and love our brothers and our sisters, then we can have great confidence that God is working in us. 
And I think that's so important why we are here and why we need to be a part of a church. One, I grew up in a place in Alaska where, and I don't think Alaska is an exception in this, but I see a lot of people get struggle with churches and get hurt, um, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad reasons. And I've seen people who have gone through so many churches that they can't find another church that they like, and so they end up on their own thinking that, I can't, I can't do it anymore, you know? And they end up like isolated Christians, or there's the mentality of, you know, I can't remember what it's, I've heard it called, like the modern American trinity of me, my Bible, and, and God. Um, how can you love your brother if you isolate yourself from the body of Christ? Yes, there are times in history we see in the book of Acts where God miraculously brings a servant to explain the scriptures to this Ethiopian eunuch, and then the Ethiopian eunuch goes on to Ethiopia all by himself, I'm not saying that he is not a Christian because he's not loving his brother in Ethiopia because he doesn't have the brother there, but if we isolate ourselves, if we turn from them, then we ought not say that we love God. But brothers and sisters, it, this passage should give us confidence, though. Because if we have been transformed by the gospel, if we love and care about each other, then we cannot live in fear. We can live without fear. What does that look like? I mean, it could just simply be you could struggle and struggle, and it might just be you falling on your knees and praying for each other. Sometimes maybe even we don't even know how we love our brothers and sisters because we're struggling so much. And maybe that's the area where we need to confess and be with each other and have other people, other Christians, come alongside ourselves. To encourage us and say, you know, I saw that, man. I'm, I'm encouraged by that in your life. And to see that and be able to encourage and strengthen each other. As we prepare to have table groups start back up, that is one area where, where that would be beneficial for all of us, isn't it? To, to be together in a group where we can encourage each other, where we can see Christ working in our lives, where we can pray for each other, know how each other are struggling and what needs they have. Brothers and sisters, the means to loving each other are endless. But let's do that because Christ has loved us, because God is love. Therefore, we ought to love one another so that we might be like God, that we might be godly. And by doing so, as a church, if we love each other, we can display to the world the glory of God and his love in Jesus Christ. And in so doing, we should have great confidence because we believe that the message of the gospel and we see the fruit it bears in our lives. If you'd pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us this message of the gospel, that we learn about who you are, that you are love. Lord, we, we want to be careful in, in what we say about that and how we articulate that, but we want to know and rest assured and perfect confidence that we can know you, and we know you especially in the person of Jesus Christ and what he came to the earth to do and what he accomplished, and the fact that your spirit is now in us, assuring our hearts that we are in him, and causing us to love him by loving our brothers and sisters. 
So, Father, we pray that we would go and those who believe the gospel and those who love your brothers would have great confidence that they would not live in fear, but that they would have a sense of security in who they are and the fact that you abide in us and we in you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who, who has so displayed your love. As we come in his name, we pray that we would display his love to the world as you work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.